conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff. And I'm Eleanor Goldfield. That's right. I'm delighted to share exciting news with our audience. This week on the program, we welcome our new co-host, creative radical journalist and filmmaker, Eleanor Goldfield. Many of you have heard Eleanor as a guest on the program. She now officially joins the Project Censored team to co-host our weekly public affairs program. And it is fantastic to be here and be a part of the program. We begin today's show with another brief update from journalist Kevin Gostola on the Julian Assange extradition case, one we're watching very closely given its wide-ranging implications for a free press. Also on the program, I recently interviewed artist and organizer Joyisha Dutta of Another Gulf is Possible to discuss ongoing lease sale issues in the Gulf of Mexico and just transition in the Gulf region. Later in the program, I speak with journalist and media scholar Alan McLeod of Mint Press News, and we discuss the private social media and tech intelligence agency Graphica, which works with the U.S. Department of Defense, DARPA, the Atlantic Council, and the U.S. military, looking for, quote, foreign intelligence operations online. We talk about the propaganda crisis this imposes on a free press. An action-packed hour on the Project Censored show coming up next with our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. In this next segment, we get an update on the Julian Assange case. Joining us again on the program is Kevin Gostola, curator of the Dissenter Newsletter, a project of shadowproof.com. Kevin Gostola also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure, and he is, of course, no stranger to the Project Censored audience. We reach out, like many people do, including Daniel Ellsberg, we reach out to Kevin Gostola for updates on Julian Assange, as he's been following this case since its inception, and of course, Kevin has been following whistleblower cases going back well over a decade. Kevin Gostola, welcome to the Project Censored show again today for an update on the Assange case. You wrote a piece at Shadowproof late January. The British High Court opens the door for Assange to appeal to the Supreme Court. Give us an update on what's happening with the Assange case and what the implications are for this decision. Kevin. It was back in January that his legal team had a victory, maybe a small victory, but a victory nonetheless, because the High Court of Justice, which overturned the lower court's decision last year in favor of the US government decided to, and this is legally complex, but this is the way to speak about it accurately. They certified a point of law and agreed with Assange's legal team that they had raised an issue of public importance that could be brought to the Supreme Court for an appeal. And that opened the door so that they could file an appeal with the British Supreme Court. This is really crucial because if they had lost, then the U.S. government would have effectively won. They would have nullified all of the issues around how extradition will be oppressive to Assange's mental health, and the extradition request could be sent to the Home Secretary to be signed off on for his transfer. An expedition to the United States. And so this was 
you know, there, there were things about this that we can say and critique, but this was marked by Stella Morris, who is Julian Assange's fiance, soon to be married. This is marked as a victory. Now there was one bittersweet aspect to it as they had asked the court to consider that the US government is saying if Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, he will not be put in restrictive prison conditions like special administrative measures, or he won't be sent to a supermax prison unless he does something and that act is an offending act that qualifies him to be put under those restrictions. And they wanted the High Court of Justice to consider whether somebody should be subject to torture or cruel and inhuman treatment if they commit an act. You know, if they already have a mental health condition, should they be subject to something that'll make that condition worse simply because they take some kind of action? And the High Court of Justice, they didn't certify this as something that was important that the Supreme Court needed to review. And that was condemned by Amnesty International. So we have a bittersweetness to this, but overall it is a victory because it means that they can go forward and file an appeal with the Supreme Court. Well, Kevin Gostola, you and I have talked about this before. Isn't it arguable that Assange is actually already being tortured in Belmarsh prison because of the confinement, the way he's been treated just in general? Hasn't that already been argued? Well, first of all, we can go back a little bit further and say that Niels Meltzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, visited with him, documented and had doctors find that he had symptoms of psychological torture from his time in the Ecuador embassy. Now, being in Belmarsh, his condition deteriorated instantly in 2019. He was put in a medical unit. Um, He's been under harsh confinement conditions. This is a high security prison. This is where they put terrorists, people who Britain is going after who are aligned with Al Qaeda are sent there. And he's there being treated very harshly. And these there's also lockdown conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic that have had an effect on his ability to see his family, to meet with friends and colleagues in the prison, to even work on his case. And so, uh, yes, you're right. There's a lot to this that has already been torturous for Julian Assange. Indeed, I just wanted to bring that back to people's attention because um, even the fleeting coverage and bias coverage that the corporate press often gives in the U.S., uh, they don't talk about where he's being held and under what conditions. And uh, Nils Melzer, who you just mentioned, I believe has a book either coming out or it's already out on on the case. I think around the time that people hear this interview, they'll be able to pick it up. Uh, it's out on February 8th. We'll definitely be doing ongoing updates with you, Kevin Gastola. I'm hoping that you'll be back on the program here again soon with maybe good news. Anything else you want to add at this point? Jen Psaki, who is the White House press secretary, was asked by a journalist multiple times in January to comment on the Assange case. And I just want to note for people that journalists are taking an interest in why the Biden administration is going after Assange and continues, but they continue to be rebuffed. There continues to be silence. Last month, the Committee to Protect Journalists even put out a report on the press freedom record of the Biden White House. And Leonard Downey, who used to work for the Washington Post, said on all the press freedom issues, he was able to get responses from the Justice Department. But when he asked about Assange, they clammed up. Very interesting and telling. 
Kevin Gostola, curator of the Dissenter Newsletter, a project of Shadowproof.com, where you're managing editor. You are also the co-host of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Kevin Gostola, thanks, as always, for joining us on Project Censored. We'll definitely be reaching out to you for updates on this important case with Julian Assange in the future. Thanks for joining us. And that was Kevin Gostola updating us on the Julian Assange case. Up next, Eleanor Goldfield recently talked with artist and organizer Joyusha Dutta of Another Golf. We'll share their conversation with you up next. We are joined right now by Joyesha Dutta, who is a multi-coastal Bangladeshi-American interdisciplinary artist, cultural organizer, and pop ed facilitator, loving and protecting the waters from the Gulf of Mexico to the Bay of Bengal. She's a co-founding member of the Another Gulf is Possible Collaborative, galvanizing folks from across the Gulf South to the Global South, working towards just transition for our people and the planet. She serves as a consultant with the Wind Call Institute and on the boards of South Asian Americans Leading Together, Eyewitness Palestine, Alternate Roots, and the Climate Justice Alliance. Thanks so much for joining us, Raisha. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off with a quote that I got from the Indigenous Environmental Network's press release about the United States District Court who recently vacated the lease sale 257, which spans more than 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. And this was in late January, and it ruled that the Biden administration failed to properly consider the greenhouse gas emissions that would result from the lease sale under the National Environmental Protection Act. So just to start off, I kind of want to get your take on this latest development. Do you think that this ruling will stick based on what you've seen and your thoughts on that? I'm not super plugged into the politics and what's going on behind the scenes. At the moment, I do think it is heartening and hopeful to see the ruling even happen. I mean, surely the oil and gas industry isn't going to just accept this, and they still have a tremendous amount of influence on our political system, including um, who's in the executive office right now. But I do think the fact that a federal judge declared this atrocious, continuous selling off of our precious natural resources to the highest bidder unsustainable. I didn't read the rulings. I don't know what grounds. I mean, I know NEPA has been consistently violated every time these lease sales have happened. So the fact that it's finally being called out for the hypocrisy it is, is, is good. I mean, whatever comes out of it will at least hopefully start to question the integrity of, of doing something like what we have been doing for so long. And I'm curious what you feel as somebody who's done this kind of work for quite some time, what do you feel the role of the judiciary is in these kind of instances and, and how that either parallels or how that clashes against things like direct action? I believe part of the role of direct action is to spur the mechanics of the systems like the judicial system or the legal system to change. And so I believe 
in some cases, some instances, direct action can have an immediate effect to stop something. I believe with the oil and gas lease sale, for example, the actions that we were doing in particular back in 2016, when this is pre-COVID, when BOEM, which is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, decided to all of a sudden make their lease sales virtual and not open to the public was after we had conducted multiple direct actions at the Superdome protesting the, the lease sales, which had really been something that hadn't really been in the public eye as something that was basically the government being complicit in the fossil fuel industry's complete illegitimate and horrifying extraction of our ocean resources. So, you know, the, the direct action led at least to that action, but I do believe what's happening now in the judiciary is years later, the impact of hopefully, again, this isn't an issue we work actively on, but my assumption is that the direct action has has spurred some of the um, the legal consequences that we're now seeing. And whether that sticks, I think, goes back to the public sentiment and the public's understanding that this is something that's happening and that we're literally selling parcels of the ocean off. The largest man-made disaster ever happened in the same waters in the Gulf of Mexico. And folks back in the BP oil disaster, you know, there was a moratorium. There was a lot of grumbling about the moratorium, but we managed, right? And that was like a full, full moratorium. So I feel like we have to part of this concept of moving from an extractive system to regenerative and sustainable ways. You know, we're not saying stop driving cars per se, or stop eating meat or whatever it is, like all the things that people want to throw in environmentalist space. No, there's better ways to do those things. And one of the worst things we already know is to be deep sea drilling for oil, which is something we just don't need. We don't need oil anymore. We just don't need it. And so there are ways for us to get the power, electricity that we need to power our lives without exploiting the oceans anymore. So I think this is a good sign that maybe the United States will start to go the way other countries in the world have already gone. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Just a reminder that you are tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We'll continue the program and our conversations after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Going in that other direction, what do you feel 
someone like Biden could do right now to not just secure energy needs, but to address the environmental realities of the Gulf Coast region. What do you see that needs to happen in that specific area where you live right now? There's a drastic shift in investment of the infrastructure. And so this idea, the infrastructure bill that's passing right now in the Gulf South, and particularly Texas and Louisiana, I'll say there needs to be a massive shift in those investments that are going towards infrastructure instead of being towards the fossil fuel industry to be towards solar, wind, and even potentially hydroelectric power because we have the ocean, right? We have Mississippi River um, working with the water instead of against it might be another direction to go. There's so much investment that could be made in that new technology, as well as investment in adaptation and quote unquote resilience to the basically permanent state of climate chaos we're going to be in. People who are going to stay on the coast, whether it's where I am right now, which is in South Florida or in New Orleans, where my home still is or South Texas, anywhere, we're going to continue to have these hurricanes. And so there needs to also be an investment in the infrastructure to support people to be able to withstand those hurricanes that are continuing to come. And that, I believe, is part of our government's responsibility is to support us instead of every time a storm comes that's a direct result of climate change, that's a direct result of fossil fuels uh, extraction to help support people to be able to not feel like every time a hurricane happens, it's up to them as individuals to somehow have to rebuild their house. I will say things are a little bit better than they were, you know, Hurricane Ida. There were some, some better mechanisms in place, but so much of that is due to local grassroots efforts. It wasn't greater systems. It wasn't the federal government's. FEMA has not gotten any better, right? So I think the shifting of investment and how the rest of the country sees the region. It's been this region, the South in general, that's been extracted from since the founding of the country, from the founding of extracting people from Africa to beyond plantations. This instinct to extract from the region, from the land, from the water is just so instinctive. We need to do like a full change up. And Biden, I'm not convinced, is committed to really changing who is getting the resources, who's getting it, how then it's being used, and where it's actually impacting. Because it really impacting the, the poorest communities and the ones that are the most unlikely to be getting big government contracts, you know, this big money that's that's all around right now, I'm not seeing it going to the people who need it the most. And I don't think Biden is committed to that um, or isn't showing that he's committed to that at this moment. It is paralleling to what we see happening in COVID that, you know, you've got people waiting six hours to get food from a food bank, something they told us only happened in like evil socialist countries. And of course, that's pure capitalism right there. Another Gulf is Possible was something that you co-founded back in 2016 during another proposed sale of millions of acres in the Gulf. And this latest sale is the biggest sale, as I understand it, but it's far from unique. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the culture of lease sales and just selling off parcels, like you put it, parcels of the ocean for gas and oil exploration. I didn't know about it. I think it's a very little known 
process that happens for oil and gas industry to have access to deep sea drilling. And it's just pennies, almost nothing. These fossil fuel industries are leasing ocean, which technically doesn't belong to anyone, I would argue, but leases it from the government to then be able to put in these deep sea drilling platforms. But if you, as a person, if we want to just put in a bid, because we want a little piece of ocean to try a a floating garden, you know, we can put in a bid. They're never going to accept our bid. So it's this insider game where Boehm and, and these oil and gas executives go in cahoots. It was really not something that the public was engaged or involved in until this whole no new leases campaign was happening back then, which put it on the radar. And I think both Boehm and the oil and gas industry was not pleased with that because nobody knew it was happening before. And I think that's why today we're seeing this ruling because before that visibility had happened, it was something that maybe the super hardcore enviro people knew about. And then the actual people who are kind of doing this, I I believe, morally bankrupt thing, which is selling off the ocean. If you asked people, do you want to sell the ocean off? Most people would not be cool with it. If anything, they wouldn't be cool with it being pennies, given the amount of profit these corporations get, that there would be an expectation. Where's the reciprocity? There's no reciprocity. They just take, they exploit their workers. There's no safety mechanisms that are in place to prevent the workers who die. Those workers are no more safe than they were 12 years ago. We just continue to let it happen. So again, I'm heartened that there is some progress, I believe. I hope it sticks. I hope this is the start of people saying, how did we ever do that before? We're not going to do that again. That's what I hope. You know, if anything, this moment of the pandemic hopefully is an opportunity to rethink how we do everything, including how and why we're extracting natural resources that are finite. We have to figure out a different way regardless. It's really remarkable because right after a hurricane hit the Gulf, that's when Biden approved this lease sale and said that it could move forward because he claimed that there wasn't enough evidence to show that it would negatively impact the environment. Like, right after this ginormous hurricane hit the Gulf Coast region. You were talking about the stereotypes about the South. And another one is that people down there are really backwards and they don't care. And and you mentioned that one of the reasons that things were better after Ida is because of this grassroots organizing that it, that's happened down there. Do you feel like there is a paradigm shift among people and maybe the pandemic has helped make the situation even more overt? I don't think we're all the way there, but I do think... In the last 10, 15 years, I think it's gotten to be undeniable. I think there's an aspect to the frequency, the severity, and the impacts that these storms have had, specifically in Louisiana lately, just year after year of extraordinarily strong hurricanes. Like any one of the last three years of hurricanes we've had would have been like every 10 year thing. And I think the government takes advantage of this and the oil and gas industry. I don't think folks are quite ready to make the jump from the oil drilling platforms in the Gulf leading to why the increased storm severity and hurricane, but people are at least now like the idea of climate change and the climate is changed. 
can't have your head in the sand about that part anymore. But I feel like now the, the admitting where and why the causality of it, that we actually have responsibility to take, it's actually going to get worse if we don't do something. That is the part that we still are, I think, struggling. I think this is the whole country, if not the whole world. We reduce the actions that need to be taken around climate to things like plastic bags and straws and just these individual consumer actions, which are good. I'm not saying that's not, but that's not what it's going to take. What it's going to actually take for us to survive the climate chaos. And to me, the jury's still out if humans deserve it. I don't know. I trust the earth. She's going to shake us off. If we want to stay on, if we want to stay on the ride, if we want to continue with her, we're going to have to change. I think we do have a little more intelligence than the dinosaurs did. And so we have an opportunity to change, but it has to be pretty significant. And that's where I think the region, the country, we're still not there yet. But there is a recognition, just like I think there is in the West with the fires. All these places are having wild, wild weather. Scientists have been warning us for 40 years now. It's happening. So what are we going to do? I'm glad this federal judge took a step, a pretty strong step, to force a little bit of that reckoning that we need. What do you feel is the best push that folks can make in terms of a just transition, in terms of building a better future? Do you feel like it's petitioning government or do you feel like it's grassroots organizing? What do you feel is the best route or routes, plural? Whenever opportunity arises to engage with the public policy processes as it relates to things like this, I do try to do public comment, things like that when I can. So I think staying engaged on that level is helpful. I also think when I say individual consumer decisions, more impactful is individual lifestyle decisions or the way in which we connect and relate to our neighbors and ourselves. There's some fundamental lifestyle things we can shift. I do think some of the silver linings of the pandemic is people really getting real with what's most important to them so that we are coming back into some more right relationship and balance with the planet. Because once you really look at the graphs of how much it takes to produce a pound of beef, but it's not just about how you buy, it's about how you live. If you're pressuring your public office, I don't necessarily believe that this huge government is going to take care of our needs. And in that way, I think there's some common ground. I don't necessarily think the government's the thing either. It's the, those resources could go for more self-governing models. So I think there's a lot of work around local governance systems, cooperative economics, if people stop assuming the status quo is the only way it's ever going to be, if we start to actually be like, no, I'm going to start building the world I want to see today. I'm not going to wait for it. So tell folks where they can find either your work or work that you'd like to point people's attention to. I'm on Another Gulf is Possible. Our website's anothergulf.com. I also do work with the Wing Call Institute, writing our relationship with ourselves to be in better balance with the earth. And that's windcallinstitute.org. Climate Justice Alliance is another, climatejusticealliance.org. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time.
This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Just a reminder that you are tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We'll continue the program and our conversations after this brief musical break. Stay with us. joined by Alan McLeod, who's a senior staff writer for Mint Press News. After completing his PhD in 2017, he published two books, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, as well as Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent, as well as a number of academic articles. He has also contributed to FAIR.org, The Guardian, Salon, The Gray Zone, Jacobin Magazine, and Common Dreams. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. It's great to be back with you. So I wanted to dive into your latest reporting on the company Graphica, which sounds at once chic and very dystopian, a company that exposes foreign influence operations online, but has a suspicious tendency to not only ignore the greater culprit of U.S. influence, but targets only those that they've marked as U.S. enemies like Russia, China, Iran. And your article goes into great detail on the connections to both U.S. and British government agencies as you write, quote, Graphica is funded by the U.S. national security state, staffed by former agents and produces content that greatly furthers the national security state's agenda. And you recently tweeted a really quite funny and dark image that shows if Twitter were honest about labeling media outlets and it has, you know, the, the usual suspects, the New York Times, Washington Post, Vox, CNN, NBC, Underneath, it says U.S. oligarchy-controlled media, but of course, that's not something that Graphica is going to highlight. And I think that this is important because a revolving door in that sense is something that people often only think about with regards to, to government. But Graphica is one of many examples of that with regards to media. Can you talk about the significance of this and what that really means for people's ability to access independent media? There is obviously a serious problem with mis- and disinformation online, but unfortunately the people who are really taking charge of this, taking control of it, tend to be the groups that are closely linked with other organizations that have been pumping out this mis- and disinformation for years. And as you said, Graphica is one of these new fancy, chic, New York-based consultancy firms. They're a social media and uh, intelligence agency for the people, as they might say. But uh, when you actually start looking into them for more than a few minutes, their connections to the U.S. national security state start looking very worrying. And it starts looking like a case of the foxes offering to guard the hen house from the Russian bear. For one thing, Graphica is largely funded by the U.S. national security state. It lists on its website that it is funded by the Pentagon's DARPA agency, that's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and the Minerva Institute, which is an organization under the aegis of the Department of Defense as well. Government records that I found as well showed that Graphica has sought and received more than $3 million in grants from the U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force in the past couple of years. And then you look at their staffing, and it is just wall-to-wall with national security state folks. 
Uh, chief among them is one of the chief investigators, Ben Nimmo, who used to be the press officer for NATO before he moved over to work for Facebook. He's also at the Atlantic Council, which is more or less openly NATO's think tank. And when you look at the Atlantic Council's board, it becomes absolutely clear who this is. They've got seven former heads of the CIA on there, for God's sake. And a lot of Graphica's key people have long, long backgrounds in the national security state. One of them is the strategy executive, Chris Bain. He spent seven years in the US Army as an officer, and then after that went 24 years in the CIA as an operative there, and then moved to Graphica. So it's kind of like the poachers are turning into gamekeepers, and that's pretty suspicious. Joanne Perry from Graphica, who's the director of federal programs, also was a CIA intelligence analyst. Lauren Penchek from Graphica, who's the vice president of finance and operations, worked with the NSA and actually became the director of corporate strategy at the NSA as well. And there's all sorts of other major people at Graphica who have worked either for the military or for the weapons industry. And so ultimately, it's very worrying that this group is part of a loose coalition along with the Atlantic Council and the Stanford Internet Observatory, who are essentially calling the shots at Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and other big social media outlets, advising them and basically curating everybody's news feeds, telling them what is true and what is false, what is fake news and what is authoritative. And when you look at who they promote, it tends to be the mainstream beltway corporate media, and they tend to very much dissuade, uh, derank and demote alternative media like Project Censored, I'm sure. So this is the real problem. This is really a very quiet, silent operation that's going on, whereby the government more or less trying to re-establish control over the means of communication, something they lost quite a lot of in the 2000s and early 2010s when the internet really exploded. One of the things that is so nefarious is just that it comes across, like you said, like this chic Manhattan-based organization that's really just out there to help the people, you know, like we want to make sure that you're getting the right information. And meanwhile, like you listed, these people are U.S. imperialism. You know, the, the revolving door is spinning wildly at places like Graphica. And uh, and you point out that Graphica has been rather instrumental in the ongoing attack against uh, leftist sites, um, places like Mint Press News, where, where you work, claiming that, you know, that's all Russian propaganda. And, uh, you know, I myself have been called Russian propaganda as well. And uh, I, I mean, talk about this in particular with those who are are going against not just the the government kind of like whole cloth, but in particular needling uh, the, the the U.S. war machine. Yeah, this has really been uh, something that really took off uh, in the wake of the 2016 election uh, bombshell, where to everybody's surprise, including his own Donald Trump, won the presidency. And I think people were really scrambling around for. Um, for a narrative to fit why Hillary Clinton lost to the most unpopular person to ever run for president in any sort of major way. And very quickly they decided, uh, the book Shattered is very interesting on this, almost immediately within 24 hours they decided that the line was that Russian propaganda had uh, lost in the election. And from there we had years and years of uh, speculation about what Russia was doing. And these reports really started to influence big social media outlets. There was a very important uh, report from an organization called Prop or Not, who 
identified more than 200 fake news websites that were peddling Russian disinformation. But what they meant about what they explicitly said was Russian disinformation was things like criticizing US empire, talking about how we shouldn't engage in a new Cold War, how you know war with Russia might be a bad idea. These sorts of things were cast off as inherently suspicious as being, you know, uh, being anti-war is essentially equated to being Vladimir Putin himself. And the list that they brought out, it did have plenty of genuine fake news sites on there, but there was also a ton of high quality alternative media out there from WikiLeaks to Mint Press, uh, to Truthout and Truthdig, to the Black Agenda Report. They were mostly on the left. There was also other ones on the right, a more libertarian bent like antiwar.com or the Ron Paul Institute. And all of these groups basically shared one thing in common, which was they were very critical of the establishment. And in particular, the sort of endless war that the US empire keeps um, pumping out constantly. And years later, it turns out that this list by uh, Proper Not was actually almost certainly done by a man called Michael Weiss, who now works for the Atlantic Council, which, as I said before, is an arm of NATO. And so ultimately, we've got this crazy situation where these organizations, these think tanks that purport, they talk about themselves as being private, nonprofit companies, but they are staffed with spooks, they're getting paid by the US government, and they're pumping out reports which align themselves perfectly with Washington, where they say that basically the US government is the fount of all knowledge and everything that's wonderful in the world. And it's pretty much only Russian, Chinese, Iranian, or Cubans that do any sort of disinformation campaigns. And Grafica has actually specifically targeted MinPress before. They released a report about a so-called uh, you know, Russian operation to take over the US left, essentially. And they named a lot of websites in there, including Mint Press and In These Times. And I think Common Dreams was another one. The Gray Zone was another one. But this became this you know, hysteria in the corporate media that Putin was taking over the US left. And again, it's a very simplistic narrative and a very useful one for the national security state and for the centrist establishment, because it corrals people into an acceptable bandwidth. Do not go to alternative media websites on the left or right. Stay with CNN, stay with Fox News. Those are the ones you can trust. And it just feeds into this idea that we are constantly being attacked by evil forces, foreign forces from Russia and China or Iran. It's always an enemy of the US government. And somehow they never seem to be able to spot similar operations going on within the US against us. And so ultimately it has the effect of turning the internet much more closely resembling what we had in the 90s with the sort of corporate media domination where they really all, you know, more and more, there is no alternative because if you're not showing up on Google, if your links are suppressed on Facebook or Twitter, how are people actually going to find out what your content is? And so ultimately, it's kind of like a, a death by a thousand cuts. It's this very soft algorithmic censorship, which is slowly killing off great alternative news sites all around the world and turning people back to the corporate monoliths that we wanted to escape from. And that was the reason we went on the internet in the first place. It reminds me of what I'd hear in high school in the, the early 2000s after 9-11. If you, you know, fill in the blank, then the terrorists win. So now it's, if you read Min Press News, then the Russians win. And this is, of course, particularly disturbing as, you know, we're inching closer to a war with another nuclear power. 
that being Russia and of course NATO only existing basically to antagonize Russia. It's so interesting the things that you pointed out about like, oh, Russia's interfering. I remember. And then meanwhile, you have organizations like Cambridge Analytica, a British company that actually boasted about election interference in the US. And meanwhile, when was the last time that anybody called BBC a mouthpiece for the British government or even uh, Sweden, one of my home countries, where the charter for Swedish television and radio, because it's state owned, literally says that they have to toe the government line in times of conflict. So you have all of these targets pointed at Iran, China, and Russia, and then the twisting of alternative media to try and fit into those boxes. And meanwhile, you have actual people that are like proudly stating that they're twisting our elections. And, you know, you have organizations like APAC that are proudly trying to twist politicians uh, to, to, to uh, support Israel. Otherwise, they're anti-Semitic. The, just the juxtaposition and the difference between supposed interference and the actual interference is, is quite remarkable. You know, there is just an enormous state-funded operation dedicated to convincing us that there is a similarly enormous foreign state-funded media interference campaign. And it's really quite incredible. It's kind of like uh, the thief-thief principle, meaning that, you know, if you're trying to steal something from someone in a crowded marketplace, the best thing to do is to immediately shout, thief-thief, and then everybody looks around looks away from you, starts, you know, getting confused, leaving you to pickpocket the person. I feel like that's kind of what's going on with uh, foreign interference right now. The US national security state is taking an enormous amount of control over social media, groups like Facebook, groups like uh, Reddit and uh, Twitter. They have, you know, just an inordinate amount of leverage to decide what we see and what we don't see. And it's all being done under the guise of keeping us safe from the Russians or the Chinese or whoever the boogeyman of the day is. But I want to say something that I said before on this uh, show, but I'll say it again because it's really worth reminding. Fake news goes a lot further than, you know, a couple of Georgian teenagers posting some nonsense on Facebook about Hillary Clinton going to die. The most important and devastating and pernicious fake news of the 21st century wasn't shared by a bunch of hapless Russian bloggers. It was shared by the likes of CNN and the New York Times. I'm talking about the WMD fiasco in Iraq. That led to over a million people dying, millions of people losing their homes and having to countries, an entire region of the world destroyed. We've had other ridiculous fake news campaigns about Gaddafi giving Viagra to his rape squads to carry out a genocide in Libya, which, you know, we now know is completely bogus, but it helps NATO get into a war there and has destroyed that country as well. So when we're actually talking about the damage that fake news can do, very often it's pretty much linked, it's correlated with the size of the media outlet. And unfortunately, the biggest media outlets are often some of the worst purveyors of fake news in times of crisis. And I think that's really the important thing here. When we're talking about disinformation online, these reports, what they actually show is the Russians are, as you said, or as you uh, intimated, they're actually pretty incompetent about what they're doing. They get a few likes on Facebook, they managed to get a few hundred followers. They're having essentially no impact. Whereas we're kind of ignoring what's going on right in front of our eyes because it's being you know, masked by the sort of rhetoric of keeping us safe. It's really an incredible moment we're living in.
This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Just a reminder that you are tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. We'll continue the program and our conversations after this brief musical break. Stay with us. This is really important that you, you know, you brought up the WMDs and the long history of this that goes back, of course, far before the WMDs as well. I mean, it's the second time that we've had this vendetta against Russia. And there are many people that are still alive that were brought before HUAC and uh, and things like that to try and prove that they were American enough. And we're really seeing the same thing here. And, and you know, at the same time, I think people often misunderstand or mistake propaganda thinking that it'll look to go back to, to the Second World War era, that it'll look like that, you know, that it'll be like this poster with, with Hitler on it saying, prove that you're German enough or something. But it's not, it's not like that. It is like these sexy companies like Graphica that have chic minimalist looking offices in Manhattan and things like that. It's a smooth operation of U.S. imperialism. And I think that that's something that you've also highlighted here, that you don't see this, this operation. But when you, when you look behind the curtain, uh, you see all of a sudden CIA operatives and you see, you know, people who worked for NATO as press officers and things like that. But it does require people to do that searching and to do that looking. You know, one of the things that Project Censored really works most strongly on is the, the aspect of media literacy and pushing people to ask those questions like, oh yeah, well, why should we demonize Russia? Or really, do we really think that it's in Putin's interest to start Black Lives Matter protests outside of Atlanta? The ridiculous things like that. How do you feel about the current media literacy situation in the U.S.? Well, you know, uh, honestly, it's quite perilous. Of course, when we look at the polls, a lot of people will say that they don't trust the media, which I frankly think is a good thing. But when you actually dig into what they believe and how they understand the world and, you know, how they actually analyze media, it turns out that they're very, very poor at it. There's been studies that show that the majority of people don't know the difference between paid content and genuine news. So they don't understand what's an advertorial and what isn't. And we're having this sort of blending of the corporate world and the news world. These editorial and advertising and news are also supposed to be completely distinct from each other, separated by firewalls. But ultimately, that's not happening. We're living in an era where the old sort of media model is kind of dying, the one that was based on small ads and advertising being the main source of income for media. That is really crashing with the rise of the internet to the point where radio shows and TV stations and newspapers are just going bust left, right and center all around the world. And what's replacing it is kind of an internet based one where there's not really much of a barrier to start up a website or anything, but there are huge costs involved in actually paying journalists. Investigative reporting is not cheap. And that's usually the first thing that gets cut when budgets start getting slashed because it's the most expensive thing. And sometimes it can take months for one article to come out, but it's often the most important stuff. And so really, when we're talking about how bad the situation is, the only hope I can see is something that I know Project Censored has talked about a lot, and that is media literacy. 
we do need a course, as Noam Chomsky says, of uh, intellectual self-defense. We need to teach each other how to understand the media. I think in the short term, what I'd say is it's a good idea to try and read different sources and different sources from different countries as well. So for instance, we're talking in the wake of this Ukraine crisis. Why don't you go and read a Russian website or a Russian media outlet would write or what an Indian website would write or maybe Al Jazeera, which is a Qatari funded uh, website. See what they say about the things. And I'm not saying that you have to believe them. I'm sure there'll be all sorts of twistings of the truth there. But if you do that, you start to understand how your own sources of information have biases themselves and you can kind of triangulate what everybody's agenda is like that i'd also say we have to start really investing in alternative media if we believe in it we have to support listener funded radio or reader supported newspapers or websites because ultimately we have to have a system where our media is not completely dependent on huge corporate handouts or grants from the government as well. We ultimately want a system where media is a slave to their readers. Ultimately, these small donations are the things that really keep them grounded. Because ultimately, if you have some big sponsor that's putting in hundreds of thousands every year or millions, if it's a big benefactor on the issues that they care about, you're going to be silent or you're going to toe the line. Whereas if you're funded almost completely by little $5 donations, that's not going to be a barrier to you telling the truth if you think, well, I'll lose $5 from this person if I state this. So I think that's the way forward. Great points. And I was thinking when you were talking about that, about NPR, National Public Radio, as it's called, uh, although we oftentimes call it a National Petroleum Radio, because they always have these fund drives, you know, where they're asking for donations. So it makes it sound like they're a small organization. But, you know, here in DC, if you drive past their offices, it looks like something out of like a moon colony. It's got like the ticker tape, like the CNN buildings do. And it's this massive glass building that looks completely out of place in like old DC. And of course, they're fully funded by the rich and the, the the oligarchs who have a vested interest in pushing imperialist and of course the, the the two party or really one party agenda and yet they too kind of like Graphica have this guise of like but we're on your side and we want to make sure that you're getting the news you deserve and it's also with the point of looking at different sources I think that's hugely important just taking a second to go look at the funding page if they have one and if they don't why not how to dig deeper into the sources and to see why they're reporting or not reporting on certain things. And with regards to that, I wanted to also talk about an article, and I don't usually bring up things that are almost a year old, but in this instance, I thought it was really uh, applicable because you wrote an article about a year ago about Politico, that outlet, and about how their defense news is quite literally written by weapons manufacturers. Uh, and you wrote specifically about Northrop Grumman. Now it seems to be Lockheed Martin that's taking more of the bylines. But this is the year later. Obviously, this has been going on longer than that, like a new old news segment that we're doing here. <laughs> Take us back to this is media that's literally funded and written by weapons manufacturers. And as you said, people aren't able to recognize or don't recognize the difference. And just the fact that Politico, they have the byline there. But for instance, the New York Times or CNN or NBC, it doesn't say on their byline, like this war hawkish segment brought to you by. There's an old joke that maybe we should make senators uh, wear those suits that NASCAR drivers do, where they have all of their sponsors like on their lapels, on their arms, on their legs. And so that way you'd really know who's giving donations to these politicians and you know who they actually work for. And I think that would be a very good idea for media as well. 
On the case of Politico, it really is astonishing. They've got all of these very influential newsletters, which are written for sort of specialists. They've got them for everything from pharmaceuticals to agriculture, to the military, to energy, to transportation, to New York or Chicago or DC or LA or whatever you want to find out. They've got a huge reach in that case. But in the past couple of years, they've actually started doing direct sponsorships of these things. And of course, you do have to find a way of funding your news. But I think when you're somebody who is reporting on the national security state and on military more generally, I think it is a massive conflict of interest to be funded almost completely by Lockheed Martin as the political defense newsletter is right now. They put out article after article talking to these guys from you know, the defense department, or former CEOs of big military companies. And the titles are always stuff like, should we go to war with Russia now? And then right below it says, presented by Lockheed Martin. This is just an absolutely flagrant violation of any sort of journalistic integrity. You know, it doesn't stop there. It's pharmaceutical coverage. Healthcare One is sponsored by CVS Health. Its energy newsletter is paid for by ExxonMobil. That's, again, enormous conflict of interest. And, you know, it's even got a tax one, which is funded by a very shady company, which keeps ripping off its customers. In most countries, the government has its own online system of tax filing. However, in the US, that's not really the case. A company called Intuit has lobbied heavily against the IRS, creating a software that would help people do their taxes. And as a result, millions of Americans struggle to file taxes and they actually pay into it for their services. But it's a legal requirement in the United States to allow people earning less than $66,000 per year to use its software for free. But it's almost impossible to actually use that software for free because Intuit makes you jump through so many hoops that most people don't even know what's going on. And so if a company like that is sponsoring Politico's tax newsletter, you can be damn sure that Politico is not going to be doing any hard reporting on Intuit. And it's the same with the military newsletter. I checked for that article last year. And with Northrop Grumman, who sponsored it at the time, they had essentially no news on Northrop Grumman except positive puff pieces. And so ultimately, sources of funding are a real driver on how media actually ends up, you know, what its outlook is, who it goes after. If a hand that is feeding you to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're probably not going to bite it ultimately. And that's a real problem if we want a free and independent media. I think this is a good time to let folks know that Mint Press News, who you write for, is an independent outlet that does great reporting. You do great investigative journalist pieces. And uh, again, it's funded by regular people that are interested in media literacy and actually getting information from the front lines and from people who dig for solid sources as opposed to just towing the government line and being a spokesperson for the State Department. So, Alan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to be with us today and tell folks where they can find more of your work. You can find me at mintpressnews.com, or if you're on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Alan R. McLeod, that's M-A-C-L-E-O-D, or on Instagram as well, Alan R. McLeod. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure.
And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff, executive producer and host of the program, co-founded by Peter Phillips in 2010. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield, and Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer and man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find any of our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in and thanks for welcoming our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxes while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love with the brothers in our